You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1962 film, Hari Kiri. So this film takes place in the early 1600s. Yep. And this is still the Tokugawa era? Shogunate, yep. Shogunate era of Japan. Yep. 200 years away from the big, 250 years almost away from the big Meiji Restoration in the 1860s. Um, And our main character's name is Sugomo. He is now a ronin, a masterless samurai, because he was, but he's going to meet there because his clan has been broken up and he wants to commit seppuku or harikari, which is this honorable form of suicide because he's, Without a master, he has hard. He's no. He's starving, and he can't get work. He's out yeah. of money. Figures this is the way to end it. The E clan, uh, apparently, at another um, area, a similar Ronin did the same thing. Yes, he wanted to go there to commit Harry Carey, but and he gave this impassioned plea. Apparently, and the master of that clan was so moved by that he offered him a job. Yeah. And that set forth this ripple effect of other Ronin who are in the same disposition, yeah. who are going to other clans saying that they were going to commit Hari Kari, but they had no intention of doing that just to win over them and get money. And a lot of these clans sort of know what's going on. They say, just here, here's a couple of money, here's some money, get out of here. Right guilt you into it it's not so much a, not even a scam it's just it's it's a very the, the the ronin are stuck in a position because oddly enough it's peacetime yeah it's peacetime they're they're they're, they're in a, a that's why everyone's breaking up because they they don't have a lot of work it's a yeah it's a combination not having work work as samurai as soldiers but also apparently and i'm not familiar with the history but Apparently, also the uh, essentially the, the lords that employ them, right? They can lose their positions through uh, incompetence, and apparently that's what has happened with uh, Tsukomo, the, the person that essentially employed him. Uh, apparently, did some sort of a botched job in uh, repairing um, a, a, a a large public building in. Uh, Hiroshima, right? Mm-hmm. So he lost his job, and as a result, all of his retainers lost their positions. Yes. Yeah. So he goes to the E clan to do this, and they're yeah. preparing it, but they're saying, we got another one. Yeah. And one of the guys tells him, okay, if you're going to do this, I'm going to have to tell you a story about a similar uh, samurai that came here just a couple months ago. And his name is... Shijiwa. Yes. And this is a much younger guy. Yep. Um, and when he, you see him, it's it's interesting because when you see him, I'm sorry to interrupt, but mm-hmm. when you see him in, uh, in in those early portions of the film where, where uh, 
this uh, counselor is telling this story to uh, Tsukomo, uh, you do look at him and go, wow, this guy's awfully young to be a samurai. It's almost like you don't believe he is. You, you do find out later he actually was. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it's, it, they do, have, I think, a very effective job of just showing the incredible youth of this guy in more, more than one way, I guess I should say, and we'll get to that. But. Yes. But in Shijiwa, so it's a flashback, this guy named Shijiwa, who he says he was a samurai, saying he's going to commit suicide there, yeah. honorable suicide. But the members of the E clan are suspicious because this thing's been happening and they doubt his intentions. One time they're getting him ready. They go through his stuff. He has those two samurai swords that they're always carrying. Yeah. They open it up, and it's a bamboo sword. It's basically like a toy sword almost. Yeah. It's not yeah. you know, metal. And they realize... And the short that, knife is as well. Yes. Yeah. And they realize that he's just another one of the guys looking for a handout. Yes. And so they're, they're saying, let's just do what everyone else does. Send him some money and tell him to get out of here. But um, after the three, there's three of them who mm-hmm. are particularly insistent, like, you know what? He wants to do this. Let's make sure he does it. Yeah. So they present him the honorable thing, uh, the honorable clothes. They even, it's like they say, you're going to grant ceremony with the head of the clan. And then that's when he starts getting cold feet. He asks to leave. And then they say to him, well, you, that's this is very dishonorable. You can't do this. Or you're not one of those who are just looking for a handout, are you? Eventually, they force him into the ceremony. Yeah. And even when he asks to give me another day or two, I'll come back, they refuse him. And so and they make him use the bamboo swords. And so they basically yeah. force him into committing the Harry Carry while using the bamboo swords is a very brutal oh, scene. It's a very brutal scene. They, they can't, he can't get the bamboo sword to penetrate his abdomen. And he tries repeatedly, and finally he does. And he starts to try to do the movement across the chest, because you're supposed to go across uh, in most cases. But in, in this particular case, just to make it more brutal for him, they instruct him that you not only have to go across... But you have to go up and down, and only then will we strike your neck. Yes, and they have um, to. He has to be beheaded. That's right. the second part. And, There's and a this second. Is kind of the, the the part of the seppuku uh, um, ceremony that is merciful, and basically they're telling him, "We will give you absolutely no mercy until you complete that with your bamboo sword." And it's it's an uh, amazing amazingly cruel thing they're doing to this young man. And the three, there's three of them who are sort of really spearhead this yes. thing. Yes. And they take almost a sadistic pleasure yes. in doing this to this man. And so that's when the flashback ends, and they say, with all of that, telling you what I'm telling you now, you sure you want to go through with this? And he says, look, I'm not one of those guys. I know it's been going on, but trust me, I'm doing this. Yes. So they grant him the audience. He meets the head of the E.E. clan. And then he says, well, I want my second to be this one guy. Right. And then he who was one of the three guys who really spearheaded it. Yeah. They go out and find him. He's sick. What about this guy? He's sick as well. What about this third guy? He's sick as well. So they're realizing something's fishy about this. Yes. So, at the, so then he grants him and tells, like, well... One of my requests, let me tell you this story. Yeah. And he tells him that the big reveal is that Shijiwa is an acquaintance of his. Yeah. 
and it's revealed that he was friends with Shijiwa's father. Right. And then as a young child, Shijiwa's father passed on, and Shijiwa's father told um, Tsugomo to take care of him. Yes, and we should point out that uh, Tsugomo, or the, the, uh, Shijiwa's father, it was a fellow samurai. A fellow samurai, Tsugomo. yes. So they knew each other, they served together, and he, he basically, he ends up committing suicide mm-hmm. because his lord committed suicide because his lord had been uh, ashamed for doing another not specifically detailed uh, a bad job right yes so he was required to c- commit suicide and the uh, father of Tijiwa felt honor bound to do the same thing because he was his lieutenant but he made uh, Tsukomo promise that he would keep care of his son and of course uh, you're about to say yes and then um, Sugomo's has a daughter, right? Miho and Jiwa and Miho have known each other since they were kids. As it, when she grows up and she becomes a young adult, um, Shijiwa receives. I mean, Sugomo receives offers. Well, no, concubine. not here. Concubine. Concubine. The idea here is, and this was not unusual practice, right? The mm-hmm. idea here was, you know, look, Sugomo, you're in dire straits. You need money. So what what you can do is basically give over your daughter to be this concubine for this very powerful lord. He will not only uh, keep her, give her pay, but you will pay, receive pay as well. And Tsukomo will have nothing to do with that. Yeah. He will not subject his daughter to that just to keep himself out of out of pecuniary. Um, a, a very noble thing. Yes. He refuses to do it. And he, seeing that they, him and his uh, daughter, Shiwa and his daughter have known each other and in love, he says, go, he gives them the blessing to go ahead and get married. They have a child. Yeah. But that is when things start to happen. Yeah. Uh, Miho becomes very sick. The yeah. baby becomes very sick. And around this time, they hear about that samurai that did this and the trend that's been going on. Shijiwa originally hears it, and he says, oh, that's just disgraceful. Nobody, why would anybody do that? Yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah. But this as when it the gets, times are good. That's when yeah. the times are good. He and uh, Miho of Kingo, I love these scenes, and Tsukomo is home, and he's playing with the kid, and things are going well. They're not uh, rich by any means, but he's teaching. Shijiwa uh, uh, is teaching uh, uh, the, the local kids, right? Uh, Confucian... Um, philosophy a little bit there that's kind of neat and uh uh miho seems to be very happy doing uh, uh, uh manufacturing fans right mm-hmm. and even sukomo who he's, is no longer a warrior he's helping her yeah, do he's that. helping her and he's manufacturing umbrellas as well so they're making a living they're happy but then like you say disaster strikes and it's a very interesting contrast that they draw when sukomo and uh chijiwa are having that conversation and they bring up that that uh that one guy that had gone somewhere else in Edo and had asked to commit Harikiri at, at, a, at a, uh, a house. And he said, yeah, you're right. He says, oh, that's disgraceful. I would never do that, or it should never be done. Little does he know that he will be put in a position where he understands it, it makes sense to him. Uh, little does he know that uh, later on he will understand why that uh, Ronan would go to that go to those lengths because he's in that same position eventually um 
both Miho and Kingu become very sick. And that is when the time, Shijiwa, when they're very desperate, yeah. he makes, he decides to go to, to do the act of faking the suicide to get the money. Right. And while that happens, they don't know where he is, and Kingo is the first to pass on, right? Yeah. And then at right, this, almost the same time that happens, they get the body of Shijiwa. Yes. And they get the body from the three guys, and they tell him how noble he was comparing this, especially with his weapon, with the bamboo sword. And you can tell they have a sort of sadistic smirk on their face as they're saying this. And not too far after that, that is also when Miho dies. Yep. And and that's when we get the flash forward. That is when Sugomo decides to head to the Ii clan and tell his story, and now we're all caught up. Yes. And they tell him... You know, he tells this, but this yeah. counselor of the E clan, he says, well, he should have he known better. We, we, we did what was according to his wishes, and if he didn't want to go through with it, he shouldn't have come here in the first place. He tells him that we have this code of honor that yeah. we have to follow and everything, and this is one of the better moments of the movie. Um, he says, okay, well, he says, oh, there's your code of honor, and he pulls out, reaches in his pocket... And he pulls out three clumps of hair, top knots. Yes. And they were the three top knots of the samurais, the three guys who are responsible, the ones who are conveniently sick. They've yeah. tried to get them. They say, oh, you don't want to come in here. I'm really bad. You don't want to see me. Great now, flashback happens at that point where he tells the story of how he tracked down all three, or tracked down two, and the other one yes. came to him. And he didn't kill them. He, he just took them. their he top just knots. cuts their top knots off. And it's, it's very symbolic. He's saying, look, you guys have disgraced the allegedly honorable institution that you were a part of in the way you treated this person. You didn't even ask why he would be doing something like this. Um, it's interesting because, yeah, he's not, he doesn't even dispute the fact that the uh, a samurai disingenuously asking to perform Harry Harry Carey simply so he can get essentially a payoff is dishonorable. He doesn't even argue with that, but he, but he does argue with the fact that they don't put forth any kind of effort to see what kind of a justification the kid would have for doing this. Um, because it's also part of an honor code, especially a warrior's honor code, that they you have certain stewardship responsibilities toward the people that are in your clan or your fellow soldiers or so forth. And that doesn't give them free reign to con you, right? Mm-hmm. But it does uh, put on, put upon you a burden of responsibility to see if there is some good reason for them doing something like this and if there is some way you can find a better solution for it. Right. Not only for that individual, but as precedent, because clearly this is becoming a standard practice because the one person did succeed in doing it. But what they need to figure out and what he's saying that the whole point of that speech he makes is the whole is um, you have to find a way to honorably bring him back from the precipice of doing something dishonorable. And certainly, if you can do so without him having to lose his life, a fellow samurai, a fellow soldier, then by all means, you're obligated to do it. And they failed in that obligation. And you can just see the contempt in his eyes 
and that was the whole point of just cutting off the top knot. Basically, it's saying you are not a samurai. Yes. That behavior is not samurai. And so it finally gets down to the showdown. Yeah. You got to love the samurai movies because it always comes down to that, just like a showdown in a Western. Uh, they all draw their swords. Yeah. Sugomo goes, uh, f- takes them all on. He takes down, I believe they say he killed four and wounded eight. Yes. And but eventually he succumbs, but not before because they have this shrine of this red samurai armor. After he destroys it and knocks it down, yeah. but he finally dies. They kill him. But while they do that, they carefully make sure that everything they, that happened was covered up. That Sugomo dies in a somewhat honorable way. He just came there to commit Harry Carey. He did that. They also, the three samurai, they tell them that they should have just done that earlier. They shouldn't try to hide. They made sure they commit suicide. Everything gets yeah. covered up. The Yi clan looks okay. And yeah. that's the end of the movie. Yeah. Now, if you go on, it's been, I've noticed this movie has always been well received, but even lately it's been getting a bigger boost. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go on IMDb, it's now ranked as the 33rd greatest film ever made. Letterbox is also a very popular movie website. They rank it as the third greatest movie ever made, wow. behind only Come, Come and See, a Russian World War II film, and Parasite, which just came out two years ago. <laughs> so this is, uh, I and I have to agree, this is one of the best movies I think I've ever seen. I agree with that, too. I mean, there, there's all, all kinds of reasons. So the, the thematics and the, the exploration of the... Uh, uh, the notion of a warrior code, an ethics code, a moral code uh, is certainly part of it, but just visually, the thing is stunning. And I find the choreography throughout the very formalized choreography of the samurai court and how people move in and out of the scenes, but in particular, that, that last mm-hmm. showdown, that thing is heavily choreographed. It is like kabuki theater and uh, very, very, very impressive. I, I love, there's just this one little scene where Tsukomo has been pretty injured by this time. Cut up. He's still fighting. He's still hanging in there. He's surrounded by these guys. He's kind of up on a platform and he does this kind of sidestepping shuffle from one side of that platform to the other. Um, amazing. I, I don't know why that struck me, but it's just a wonderful mm-hmm. piece of choreography. Now, I did forgot to bring up how do they kill him? They don't kill him with the sword. They wound him, but they kill him with muskets. Yeah, they not only... even muskets. Matchlocks. Matchlocks. This is because this is 1600s. Yes. I don't even think muskets have yeah. even been invented yet. Right. So yeah, which is very symbolic. Very symbolic. They don't even use the traditional samurai weapon. Yeah, they don't. And uh, it, you get the impression that if they didn't use those, he would have, uh, if not uh, emerged victorious, at least he would have killed more of these uh, retainers. Um, but yeah, that's very symbolic. It's uh, that um, uh, in, in this way, they also they have departed from the, the, the warrior code that they profess to uphold. And it's interesting because this all goes down to the code of Bushido. And even this is the 1600s. They, that code of honor and ethics is still sort of used today, even with the J- Japan's self-defense force. But even uh, I think of 
their notion of honor, and particularly in World War II, you saw particularly how they would treat American and British POWs, because their minds, surrendering and giving yourself up to be a prisoner was dishonorable. And because of that, they had to feel that they could do whatever they wanted to you. So they could torture you, they could starve you, they could kill you, because you know what, you're less than human because you had did this thing of surrendering and even not looking on the other side that's why you saw very few japanese become pow's because they would not they would do kamikazes they would do bonsai charges because they figured it was dishonorable the few that were taken prisoner you could see if there are pictures taken of you can see them cover their faces because they feel it's a great shame yeah and that 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 explains uh, their disgust at uh, chijiwa and tsukomo because they know that um they're not, or they think that they're unwilling to make that ultimate sacrifice uh, for the good of their families or their clan. Uh, clearly, we see that's not the case in either one of, in, in the case of either one of these individuals. Um, it, it's very interesting. There's that. There's always this, that contrast in the Bushido code um, between the almost gentle behavior toward your own. Uh, contrasted with the behavior toward those that are not in your group or in your clan. And, um, it, you know, there are famous um, artistic renderings of um, uh, battles involving samurai where you see uh, not just um, uh, people in brave fight, but you see them chasing civilians, you see them taking women uh drowning old men killing children and things like that so there was always that there was always that kind of tension and contrast be- between the cruel and the inhumane and like i said that kind of gentleness toward your own and to some extent you can see that uh, a reflection of that here um and the fact that uh these uh two um Ronin are willing to uh, claim that they want to be, they want to commit harikiri uh, uh, for the purposes of getting a, a payoff as almost an excuse for them to indulge that cruel side. You know, you, you know, you, you hear the words, well, this is dishonorable, you cannot do this, and so forth, but at least in the case of those three that deliver the uh, body of Chijiwa, they don't quite pull it off. At the beginning of that encounter, you do think, well, they, you know, they're, they're trying to make the point that this is dishonorable. Um, but they're also trying to solve, solve the wounds of the, the surviving family members. And you, you think, well, this is good. It, they're not telling the truth, but this is good. It spares the feeling of, this, this, of um, uh, Tsukomo and, and, and uh, Miho. But they can't seem to keep up the facade. And he uses the word facade himself later Mm -hmm. on when he's describing this. You're right. You you mentioned earlier as you're describing it, you kind of see them start to turn and they're enjoying. um, um, They're smirking. They're smirking. They're, they're, They're making fun of the fact that he had a bamboo sword. And that, you know, he's, that's ridiculous and he wasn't intending to kill himself and so forth. And then when they leave, when they go to leave, this is very quick, 
but it's also a very powerful visual. What do they do with the sword and the short uh, knife that are uh, Chijimas? They take them and they just drop them on the body. No ceremonial choreography at all, or you might place it in a dignified fashion by the side of the body or perhaps even in the hands. No, they just dump it on it. And that cruelty, that uh, unnecessary cruelty, is what really sets Sukomo off as a samurai. And we, you know, it's interesting, we talk about this code of all the samurais, and this is a very a cynical look at that, because at the end of the movie, it's basically implying nothing's changed. This is all covered up. The yeah. E.E. clan maintains their image and their honor. They even look good yeah. to the public eye. A contrast to a film that has a much more honorable, optimistic outlook about the samurai's life and the code. It's the most famous Hollywood film on samurais is The Last Samurai from 2002, which has Tom Cruise. I just need to say, he in that movie is not The Last Samurai. It is Ken Watanabe. People always say, like, Tom Cruise becomes a samurai. He doesn't. But anyway, <laughs> but it t- that takes place in the famous Meiji Restoration yeah. in the 1860s. That's when Japan is opening up. It was 20 years after Perry came in, forced them to open up, and there's now more. They're more modernizing. Right. And the samurais were rebelling against that because they want re- return to customs. Tom Cruise falls in with them and respects their honor and tradition. That this, this honorable outlook of things need to go back to that way and not modernize. Then you look at that is not the case in this movie because this code and everything that's so honorable was not that honorable in the first place. Well, you know, it it could be arguable that it's not the code itself that uh, it's the way it's carried out. It's the way it's carried out, and the the guys through a a series of uh, uh, catastrophes and with a attendant worry that their houses are going to fall, have fallen into the mistaken impression that um, honor is just simply being perceived as honorable. And then uh, it doesn't matter exactly how you get to the public having that perception. As long as they have it, that's what counts. And you see, I think that reflected in the film by the at the beginning and the end of the film, you have written accounts, right? And, and the official a written account at the end of the story has it that Tsukomo simply just committed harikari in an honorable fashion and that the uh, four dead were uh, died of illness. And, and they completely cover this up. So, um, yeah, it's a successful PR move, perhaps, but it's not, in fact, being honorable in the uh, strictest sense of the word. And you may ask at that point, well, uh, what's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the point of having an honor code if it all just turns out to be just kind of PR? Um, and I think there's an answer to that in the, pers- in the persons of Tsukomo and um, Chijiwa, both. Um, even, if, even if they failed in uh, preserving their families to the point where they they lost uh, Kingo and Miho. Uh, They made the attempt, and they didn't do it in a way that uh, impugned their integrity, their honor, or uh, the honor of 
Tsukomo and Chijiwa themselves, right? They they did it the right way. Um, that is an established fact, even if it's not recorded, even if it's not recorded. And to do it, to do the right thing simply because it is the right thing, um, that being the purpose, not so that you will be seen as having done, done the right thing, uh, to serve even if you don't get accolades for the service. That's the important point. That is the proper motivation for doing something moral, right? They understand that. They understand the risks involved when they uh, decide to do, both of them decide to uh, approach this house, right? Uh, In the case of Chijiwa, he's, literally trying to save his family's lives, right? He doesn't care how he's perceived. That's the more important thing, right? In the case of Tsukomo, it is to not just exact revenge, but bring about justice. Restore honor in its true sense. That's his mission. And neither one of them cares how they will be perceived. What's important is the mission, attempting the mission, hopefully succeeding, but there's no, there's not even a guarantee of that, but they know they have to do it. Right. And that kind of an attitude can't be contrasted any more strongly with the cynical attitude of uh, the people in the house of, what is it again? E. It, it can't be contrasted any more strongly with the cynical attitude of these supposed masters in the House of E. They have become, for lack of a better word here, surface slick politicians. They are not honorable anymore. And that's Sukomo's entire point in cutting off the top knots, making them live with themselves afterwards. He doesn't want to make it easy on them by killing them. They have to live with themselves. They know what they did. Even if the rest of the world doesn't know, right? They know. And he does manage to get that message across. And it simply doesn't matter that in a literal sense, history will not record it. Talk about the samurai. I mean, that is a genre of movies. I mean, at, I mean, this, if you didn't know any better, you can almost swear this was an Akira Kurosawa movie because yeah. he was doing tons of those movies. <laughs> but, you know, you have movies like this which have heavy ethical implications, but then there's other stuff that's more lighthearted or more just genre pieces like Sanjuro by Kurosawa yeah. or the Lone Wolf and Cub series or there's Zatoichi, the Blind Swordsman. There's a lot of them out there. I mean, it's very similar to the way we view gunfighters here within yeah. the Westerns and, yeah. you know, with Kurosawa and Magnificent Seven, there's all that back and forth yeah. influence. A wide range and, of depths. Yeah, and like, just Westerns. like gunfighters, yes. they have their code of ethics, you know, like in... William Holden in the Wild Bunch says we you know everybody has to have a code yeah. or we're nothing. Yeah, yeah, and that that, that that's a, a there's a very close and tight parallel between the western genre for the the US and and the uh, samurai genre in Japan and it is interesting that there's crossover there's there's commonalities across cultures when you get directors seeing each other's work and going 
man, I want to do that too, and I want to do it in my genre. It's exactly right. And it's because I think in, in both cases, uh, you're right. That it's just avenue there to uh, um, explore that, that moral realm, the realm of honor, duty, obligation, commitment, and how it conflicts with the more cynical point of view that we see maybe in this case, and we see that in some Westerns. I forget which one we did earlier. Um, the assassination of Jesse James? Yeah. I mean, you can kind of see the contrast between the, the more cynical views there and, and, and the more, as it were, morally attuned uh, characters. And you see that in some other Westerns, too. And So that that's always there as kind of a core. Uh, there's also a, a kind of a core of a, a kind of odyssey stories, um, uh, that are in common with both. Um, they happen a lot too. And then you do have, you, you do have some more lighthearted comedic stuff yes, and just yes. shoot em ups or, uh, sword fights, right? Yes. F- films are more or less just that. Um, but, uh, I think that's because for both cultures, these, uh, icons, uh, the cowboy and the samurai play central roles to the way both cultures see themselves. I think, and we do getting close to the end of my questions here. One of the things I did want to bring up before we start signing off is that this film was remade in 2011. It was directed by Takashi Miike, who we talked about a long time ago with the Bird People in China. Yeah, watching it, I was. It's also very well done. And one of the things watching it the first time, because Mike, who's done stuff like Itchy the Killer and Audition, extreme violence, I would mm-hmm. say it would even make Tarantino blush. <laughs> and watch, and I was like, is especially with the brutal scenes in this movie, is he going to go over the top? And he really doesn't, huh. which I was surprised. It's a, as far as violence, it's pretty restrained. The storyline is relatively the same. The flashbacks go a little bit less in this movie than the others. But one of the things he did in the remake that I liked, and I kind of wish would have happened, he has that big showdown at the end, but in the original, he uses his sword to fight. But in the remake, he fights them off with the bamboo swords. Wow. And I don't know if he kills anybody with them, but he, he goes out, he does the same thing, he knocks down that symbolism of the red samurai yeah. armor but he's fighting with Shijiwa's bamboo sword yeah, and I thought so that was really powerful that is powerful and it's kind of symbolic that he's not only fighting for Shijima but with him so to speak uh, that's too bad they didn't uh, do something like that in this film um, although I like the way they played with that though um, you don't really uh, understand why it is he has a bamboo or, or why he has why it is he goes to a pawn shop there's a really brief scene it's kind of overhead and you see him walking uh through the gates of some kind of a pawn shop you know while he's selling something i wonder what it is shijiwa right and you only find out later oh my god when when they're about to uh, have him uh, commit suicide using the bamboo swords oh my god he literally sold everything he could to, to save his wife and kid. He sold his his uh, his blades, and again, again, the lack of curiosity alone on the, in the part of the, these uh, uh, samurai in seeing a guy bringing bamboo blades in and making this request. Uh, 
they don't even ask why. All they, they, they take the most cynical read themselves on it. Oh, well, clearly he didn't intend to do this in the first place. And he, he perhaps thought we were so stupid that we wouldn't inspect his weapons. So what a joke. We need to, we need to make an example out of this guy. Again, the worst possible read on Chijiwa's motivations without even a, a, a glimmering of that stewardship responsibility that they should have toward a fellow samurai. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. You can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, where each episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Sing so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. <laughs>